So Titus chapter 3, we will be looking at the closing verses, verses 9 through 15 of Titus chapter 3. It is uh, our practice here at Grace Covenant uh, to stand when we read God's Word together. So if you are able, uh, let me ask that you stand now. But avoid foolish foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law. For they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division after warning him once, and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. Knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. When I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis, for I have decided to spend the winter there. Do your best to speed Zenos, the lawyer, and Apollos on their way. See that they lack nothing. And let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. All who are with me send greetings to you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Let's pray together. We pray, O Holy Spirit, uh, as the one who in, uh, in within the, the Trinity, within the triune Godhead, it is your, your job, your function, your responsibility to have inspired these words, uh, to inspire Paul to write this letter, these, the very words themselves, to Titus, there on the island of Crete. You have been at work in the intervening years, centuries, uh, since this was written to preserve it and keep it for us. And we pray that you would now be at work in it, through it, by it, in our hearts and lives, that we might be conformed more and more to the image of Christ. For it's in His name that we pray. Amen. You may be seated. If you're here this morning and are um, a member of Grace Covenant Church, uh, you have taken five membership vows. If you're here this morning and, and you're not a member of Grace Covenant, but maybe would one day want to be, or you've been around long enough that by now you should be, you've heard these membership vows before. Yes, I'm taking shots at people. Um, I probably shouldn't do that, but I did. Um, You've heard these vows. Uh, you've heard them uh, numerous times. Uh, and if, if you're if you're expecting one day to join uh, Grace Covenant, here's I'm, here's one of the ones you're going to have to um, to take publicly, and that is that you will uh, submit to the government and discipline of the church, and promise to study its purity and peace. Now, study, of course, in that context means a lot more than you know, like reading a book about. Uh, it means actually pursuing and participating in uh, the purity and the peace of the church. If you are going to be an elder at Grace Covenant Church when that day comes, uh, or a deacon for that matter, um, uh, you will have to uh, actually affirm this vow to be ordained to office, that you will strive for the purity, peace, unity, and edification of the church. This little letter to Titus from Paul. Titus is pastoring 
uh, Crete Presbyterian Church, the island of Crete, kind of just south of Greece, uh, out in the middle of the Mediterranean. Um, he's, he's been pastoring this church uh, and is, is there now. He's, and he's receiving this letter from Paul with instructions on, on how to move forward there uh, in uh, these churches on the island of Crete. And the letter addresses both, in fact, for that matter, all the pastoral epistles, uh, both letters to Timothy, this, this letter to Titus, they all address uh, both the issue of uh, the purity of the church, right doctrine, right teaching, right understanding, right belief, rightly understanding God's Word, and the peace and unity of the church. They all address uh, both of those issues. Uh, perhaps if there's a if there's a knock against our denomination, it is that we will uh, more intently pursue the purity, the right understanding, knowledge, doctrine, and maybe uh, overlook uh, issues of division and unity and peace. Uh, but Paul sets them both up for us in this letter. Uh, unity and peace within the local church is a big deal, and it's a, it's a big enough deal that he addresses it right here in this passage. I'm going to suggest to you, though, that division, that dissension is not even a thing. Like, disunity is not in and of itself a thing. Now, some of you are thinking, um, I've seen division. I know disunity. And it is very real. I would suggest to you that in the absence of people, those things can't exist. The problem isn't so much division as it is divisive people. Notice what Paul writes in verse 10. He gives instructions on what to do for a person who stirs up division. Uh, division only exists when people create it. Division can only exist when people stir it up. When people with different and opposing viewpoints actually make those viewpoints known in such a way as to cause division. Division is not a thing that can exist on its own. Paul says, let me warn you. Let me warn you how to, to treat, what to do with someone who stirs up Division. The, the Greek, I, I don't frequently give you Greek and Hebrew language. I'm only giving you this because one of the words will sound familiar, actually both words, will sound familiar to you. The language there for a person who stirs up division is literally hereticos, heretic, anthropos, a, a, a heretic person. A heretic initially was not so much wrong belief as it was someone who caused dissension and stirred up division within the body. So what do you do with people who stir up trouble? Paul is telling us in this passage in verses 9 and 10 what to do with those people. And in the absence of those people, there is no division. In the absence of people stirring up that kind of dissension or contention, it wouldn't exist at all. How will you recognize people who are stirring up division? Well, he tells us in verse 9. Because in verse 9, he gives us, these are the things they talk about. These are the things 
uh, that they make a really big deal about. These are the, the issues that they major on, that they demand and insist on. Notice, first of all, avoid foolish controversies. Now, Paul's not saying that every debate, every discussion, every disagreement is, is you know, you run away from, you scream, stick your fingers in your ear, and, and run the other way. Because he's, he's actually already told us back in chapter 1 that there are people who, who are insubordinate and need to be corrected. So he's not saying every controversy, every disagreement you run away from. It's a warning against foolish ones. It's a warning against people who, who insist on sort of bringing up their own speculation. Uh, they, their own sort of fancies. They, they demand that you engage in these foolish, foolish disputes about speculative fancies of theirs. Their, their own sort of speculations about what may, might, could possibly be the date of Christ's return. Some, some Puritans actually uh, have said, you want an example of this kind of division? People that, that will major on the date of the return of Christ. Well, Scripture doesn't give us that date. So if you make a big deal about something that Scripture doesn't give us, then we can't possibly engage in that discussion. We should avoid those things. People who read into numbers throughout Scripture and, and try to piece things together that just are fanciful speculations on their part. Avoid foolish controversies. But also avoid genealogies. The, the, this, again, it's not, a, it's not a command for you. Oh, well, wait a minute. I guess I can't trace my heritage back to George Washington. Back, back to, please no, Joseph Hooker or Thomas Hooker or Richard Hooker. I would take either of those last two over Joseph any day of the week. It's not saying you can't trace your ancestry. The, the issue was, especially in first century Judaism, was to trace your ancestry back to important people. Or to, to at least make connections, make issues out of genealogies that the Bible never addresses. They would trace the genealogy back to, oh, but I'm, I'm descended from David. I'm descended from a prophet. I'm descended from one of David's mighty men. And they would use that as, therefore, I should have some authority in this church. I should have a role of leadership because don't you know who I am? Don't you know who my ancestors are? That's the context of these genealogies in Titus chapter 3. It's being divisive. When you raise those kinds of issues, when you go around claiming, well, look at my pedigree, look at my ancestry, look at who my people are, I should have some role of authority in this church because of who my people are, and, and that's inherently divisive. That's complaining to others about those who are in leadership. Third, avoid dissensions. You know people who are argumentative just for the sake of being argumentative. You know people who, uh, just because it's a day that ends in Y, they like to be 
to play the devil's, the devil's advocate. You want to look at him and go, well, he doesn't need anymore. He's got all the advocates he, he could possibly need. Don't give him more. Just because there's, there's agreement, you want to bring up some dissension, some, some argument from an opposing viewpoint only to be difficult, only to be argumentative. Paul warns, don't, don't get caught up in those dissensions. Don't get caught up in people, uh, in those debates, discussions with people who are trying to argue just for the sake of arguing. This word, by the way, if, if you look back in Galatians 5, there's a, a list of uh, the deeds of the flesh, the works of the flesh. And we're told there that the deeds of the flesh, that list in Galatians 5, will not inherit the kingdom of God. Well, this word that we have translated dissensions here in Titus 3 is in your... Also, if you're using the ESV, it's dissensions. If you're using like the New King James, it's, it's contentions. It's some other word. But in Galatians 5, it's strife. But it's the exact same word. People stirring up strife just for the sake of being argumentative, of being difficult. Paul warns, don't... Don't give them a platform. Don't give them an audience. Don't give them an ear. Don't give them more talking time. The more time they get to talk, the more they feel like they are winning. Lastly, avoid quarrels about the law, which again, in in that context, would have primarily meant the ceremonial law, not the moral law, not the Ten Commandments so much as you have to do these things in order to be a Christian. This was so common uh, in Jewish Gentile debates in the first century. If a, if a, a Gentile were to uh, come to faith in Christ, there were Jewish people demanding, well, now wait a minute, you've got to come through Judaism to get there. You've got to be circumcised. You've got to keep um, food laws, th- th- these dietary laws, and these feast days, and you've got to be circumcised. You've got to keep these ceremonial laws. Well, those things were settled in Acts 15 in the first General Assembly meeting. The matter of, of, of circumcision, the matter of food laws, the matter of, of bacon was settled in Acts 15. And yet there were people still stirring up that debate, stirring up that controversy. You've got to keep these laws, these rules in order to be a good Christian. Paul warns us, avoid those things. Avoid these four categories, these four kinds of of division, of dispute, of contention within the local body. And he says the reason is because they're completely unprofitable and worthless. They have no value whatsoever. You, You gain nothing from those debates. They're, they're worthless. They're meaningless. They're pointless. They're unprofitable. They gain you absolutely nothing. Compare that, of course, with verse 8. Just, just glance back up at verse 8. Because the things he talks about in verses 1 through 8, uh, the, the, the beauty of the doctrine of our salvation leading into obedience and good works, look what he says about those in verse 8. They are profitable. 
But these discussions, these debates, these matters are unprofitable. They're the opposite of that. So avoid them. Run from them. Don't get caught up in those debates and discussions. But practically speaking, uh, here's just as, this is as much observation as it is from the text. How can you recognize when people are being contentious? Well, obviously, the first is the, the topics, the, the matters they address. We're told those things in verse nine. They, they focus on these issues that that are, are worthless and unprofitable. They they distract from the truth of God's word and the value of of the whole gospel for the whole person to have these other debates and discussions that are meaningless. But the other way you notice you'll recognize this is because they typically do this in secret, in private. Hey, why don't you come over? Let's get together and have this discussion. No reason, you know, no, no need to bother inviting the elders. Don't, don't invite the pastor over. Don't invite, you know, anybody. Just, let's just get together and have this little side discussion. They, they grab you and pull you aside and, and get you one or two at a time and have these private, secret sort of discussions. And they insert these things in your mind just enough to create division, debate, doubt, dissension within the body. They bring these topics up in smaller group settings when the elders aren't around, for example. We would do well to learn to recognize the topics, but also the settings in which these topics typically get brought up. You know, one of the things about fishing, fishing works best when the, the bait, the lure, whatever it is you're using, whether it's live bait or, or an artificial lure of some sort, it works best when that lure mimics most closely uh, the, the, what the fish you're trying to catch would really want to eat. It, it swims like a minnow. It flashes like a minnow. It looks like a minnow. But there's a hook at the back of it. And when you grab hold of that lure and you get caught by that hook, we would do well to learn to recognize these topics, these debates, so we're not get caught by the hooks of those people who are stirring up division within the body. Learn to, to recognize uh, these debates, these discussions, so that you don't take the bait. Again, division isn't a thing without people. And if, and if you don't bite, if you don't take the hook, if you don't latch onto that lure, then it's pretty tough for divisive people to be divisive. It's pretty tough for people who stir up division to stir up division when there's nobody taking the bait. Is there anything more frustrating than a day of you know you're fishing with the best stuff and you go home and you have burgers for dinner? Because you caught absolutely nothing. We want people who stir up division at Paul's command have nothing to do with them. Avoid these 
topics. We want them to walk away disappointed and have burger for dinner because they couldn't catch any fish. That's our job. Verse 9, quite honestly, is our job. That's the role of the whole church body in relation to these foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, quarrels about the law. In verse 10, Paul summarizes something that Jesus teaches much more clearly in Matthew 18. It's that process of church discipline. What do you do when uh, there's a, a process of dealing with people in, in committed to sin, uh, living in a manner contrary to the gospel? Paul gives us a summary of that in verse 10. It's not a detailed step-by-step process. You've got to read verse 10 in light of uh, Matthew 18. But the, the elders would be the ones carrying out uh, these warnings, these admonitions in verse 10. When there's somebody in the body stirring up division, warn them once, warn them twice. And then if they continue, if they refuse to repent, if they refuse to confess their sin, admit their faults, turn and forsake that sin. Have nothing more to do with Him. It's the process of church discipline. It's the process of of how to deal with with pervasive sin and, and unrepentant sin within the body. Let me make this side comment, by the way. If, I wish I didn't have to say and when, but I'm pretty sure I have to say and when because this is just normal life for the church. But if, quietly, parenthetically, and when, Grace Covenant Church has to enter into church discipline that leads to that full, last, final step of excommunication, of telling people you, you can no longer be a member here. We don't excommunicate people for lying, for adultery, for stealing money out of the offering plate. We excommunicate them for, the big fancy word is contumacy. We recognize that believers sin. But at the work of the Holy Spirit in our hearts, we should confess and repent of that sin. The issue is unrepentant sin. It's wholehearted, committed, dedicated, running headlong to it. And I don't care what anybody says. Warn me all you want about the dangers of this sin that I so love. I'm not giving it up. It's that unrepentance that leads to excommunication. That's what Paul says in verse 10. You've warned them, you've warned them, you've sought their repentance, you've, you've sought their admission of their guilt, you want them to turn, hate, and forsake that sin, and if they don't, have nothing more to do with them. Incidentally, I've, I've in my observation, and I've had other pastors confirm this suspicion as well. Those folks who major on these issues, who, who stir up division on these kinds of matters, 
usually have something bigger they're trying to keep hidden. They usually have bigger, more difficult issues they're trying to keep out of the spotlight. Some other major struggle going on in their lives, and these are just distractions from from those things. We're to avoid people who stir up division in the church. But the remainder of the passage, verses 12 to 15, actually gives us a completely different picture, a different view of life in the church. It's a completely different picture of relationships within the body. In verses 9, this fascinates me, by the way. In verses 9 and 10, nobody travels. Nobody has a job change. And there's division. In verses 12 to 15, you've got at least four people traveling by ship from one place to another. You've got people changing jobs, carrying out missions, moving from place to place, and there's perfect peace. Because notice, Paul's going to send Artemis or Tychicus. He's not even sure which one yet. He doesn't know which one of these guys he's going to send to Crete. But one of them is going to come to Crete and give Titus a sabbatical. They're going to come and they're going to fill in for Titus while Titus takes a break from ministry there in Crete and he goes to Paul in Nicopolis on the the west coast of Greece. Meanwhile, there are two people, Zenos and Apollos, who have brought this letter to Titus. So they've come from Paul to Crete with this letter to Titus. This matters, by the way. You know, we typically read the last verses... You know, it may say final instructions and greetings is the heading in our Bible. And we kind of go, yeah, blah, blah, blah. Turn the page. Let's get to the meat of the next book. Zenos is a lawyer. Now, it's probably not Jewish law. It's probably Greco-Roman law. I mean, it's not first century Judaism kind of law. It's not that use of the word uh, that it, is, it you know, shows up so many other times in the New Testament. It means he knows how to think. He knows how to to put together an argument. He knows how to build a case against people who are guilty of stirring up division. Apollos, we know from other places, Acts 18 and 19, and from 1 Corinthians, he has been a faithful minister, a beloved brother to Paul. We, We saw him, in fact, when he first shows up on the scene, he's a great teacher, he's got a great mind, he lacks understanding of uh, some covenantal matters regarding baptism and Christ, the work of Christ. But he's humble enough to receive that from Priscilla and Aquila. And so then he takes his newfound knowledge and continues in his teaching ministry. In other words, it's, it's not just coincidental that Zenos and Apollos are the ones bringing this letter to Titus. They're perfectly gifted for the task at hand in dealing with these matters, these relationship struggles on the island of Crete. For that matter, Apollos has been 
the subject of church division in the past. Now, he didn't cause it. But in 1 Corinthians, you, you've got people saying, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Paul, I'm of Cephas. He's been sort of the, the, the representative of church division in the past. He didn't cause it. He didn't do it. It wasn't at his work. But there are those, there's division in the church in Corinth. Because some say, I follow Apollos. I follow Paul. I follow Cephas. He knows how to deal with this, kinds of, this kind of division in the local church. They're reliable, gifted men who have brought this letter to Titus and who now will, um, are there, can help deal with the matters at hand. Titus is instructed to send them away as quickly as possible, but lacking nothing. In other words, let the churches there in Crete provide for these two men so they can continue on their journey, on their ministry, on their work. The church providing for missionaries traveling through as they continue on their their mission, their ministry, their work. Artemis or Tychicus, one of these men, will show up. Titus is instructed to wait. Wait for them to get there. One of these guys is going to get there. And when he does, only then I want you to come and visit me. I'm, I'm going to winter there on the west coast of Greece and I want you to come and be with me. Tychicus, we know, has served with Paul before. He's, he's listed at the beginning of Acts 20 as a member of Paul's company. In Ephesians 6, he's a beloved brother, faithful minister. He carried the letters to Ephesus and Colossae, it appears. Do you see the picture? There's a picture of, of love and care for one another and for the church in these closing verses. It doesn't matter what role, what function I play within the body. I have a role, a function to play within the body. And I will play it to the best of my ability to the honor and glory of Christ. If it's carrying a letter to Titus, so be it. If it's taking over for the church for Titus, and serving as the pastor for three, six months, whatever, while Titus gets a sabbatical, so be it. If it's take a sabbatical from this church to go be with Paul, so be it. If it's take up a collection and offering so that we can minister to the needs of Apollos and Zenos and send them on their way. If it's, if it's so that we as a body can love them and care for them and the churches they're going to. So be it. Great. There's, there's unity, partnership within the gospel ministry. The, that kind of, of unity, the, the picture of, of people playing different roles, different responsibilities, even if only for a season of what peace and, and purity looks like within the church is a stark contrast to verses 9 and 10. These men are sharing roles. They're sharing responsibilities with joy. For whatever reason, 
necessary, gladly yielding to others, modeling humility and partnership in the Gospel. That's the thing that squelches division. That's the kind of thing that gives those who stir up dissension and division within the body absolutely no mouth to take the bait. I'd love to think that Grace Covenant Church will never, ever have this problem. The likelihood of that is pretty slim because we're all people. And the church is full of people, not yet perfect people, mind you. But I'd love to think that Grace Covenant Church will never have to deal with with anyone stirring up division and causing these kinds of problems within the church. That's just not reality. However, we can all play our part in keeping that at bay, in fulfilling our membership vow to study the purity and peace of the church by avoiding these kinds of conversations and fulfilling whatever role God gives us to the honor and glory of Christ. Seek the unity and peace of of the church as eagerly as we seek its purity. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, you have called us to be one body, united in Christ, sharing one common history of enmity with you, sharing one common status as justified, adopted sons of God, sharing one destination, eternity in the new heavens and the new earth with You. Father, even as Christ prayed in John 17 for our unity, would You grant us that by Your grace, by Your Spirit, so that truly our love for each other, the unity within this body, would be evidence to those outside of it that Christ really has come, that Christ really is the Savior, and He really is our only hope of eternal life. We pray all of this in the name of Christ. Amen.